Turn with me tonight, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I want to preach tonight on day one of creation. Let me read the scripture and then pray. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. So evening and morning were day one. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us a glimpse into the depths of your work, a glimpse into the depths of who you are, the creator, the redeemer, and savior. We pray, Father, that the work you did at the beginning will comfort us in the work you're doing now, even today, in our lives. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Whenever Moses went up on the top of Mount Sinai, to be with God for those 40 days and 40 nights. God told Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, he said to Moses, according to all that, you, that I show you, Moses, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furnishings, just so you shall make it. Did you hear those two words that were repeated there in that one verse? God used that word pattern twice when he spoke to Moses in that verse. In other words, God basically gave Moses a a blueprint of what to make down on earth. A blueprint of the tabernacle and a blueprint of the furnishings and how to design them. So Moses learned from the pattern that God gave him. And then Moses replicated it upon the earth. Well, in, in summary experience, uh, this is how, and also considering how the Bible fits together, if you want to summarize Moses' experience in that, you can say this, that God is the God of patterns. What he does on a small scale, he also does on a big scale. The actions at the beginning will correspond with God's actions at the end. Think about it. You see this in nature. Just as a small acorn will grow into a huge, massive oak tree. Even so, we're going to see here that the first works of God here on day one is like the acorn of the Bible. And this is going to be replicated and expanded throughout the scripture with different patterns. The pattern is set here on day one of creation. And it's going to grow and ripple throughout our lives and throughout the scripture. 
Now, to give more detail and justification of what I'm saying and speaking on right now, I'm going to point out several patterns that God establishes here on the first day of creation. The first pattern I want to talk about is what you can call the heavenization of earth. It's a pattern of heavenization. What do we mean by heavenization? It's the heavenizing of earth. It's the work of doing this, making the earth more and more like heaven above. Now here's what's important. The very first heavens that is mentioned in verse 1 is not the starry heavens, it's the angel heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the angel heavens. That's the throne room where God is. That's what King Solomon would call in his prayer the heaven of heavens, the highest heavens. The book of Psalms also refers to this as the heaven of heavens. When we die, we go to that heaven. You can't see it with your eyes. And also, that heaven, whenever it was first created here at the beginning of day one, it was filled with angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim. It was experiencing the brightness of the God's light. It was structured. It was beautiful. When you include all the other information in the scripture about the heaven of heavens that is created there by the word of God on the early part of day one, that's what it was like. But the contrast is mentioned in verse two. In verse two, it starts to diagnose the description of the earth right when it was created. And it's a contrast to the heavens above. The earth is formless. The earth is empty. The earth is dark. By the way, that the earth is going to start off with two human beings. And God's going to multiply his images through procreation through Adam and Eve. But you think about it. The angels in heaven, they don't get married and multiply. So all the angels in heaven are already filled. There's no more filling up of the heavens with the angels. It's already filled upon its creation. But the contrast is seen there. That's, what, that's what's happening here in verse 2. Very briefly, it says God created the, the heaven of heavens up there. Now we're going to look at the earth zone. And what we're seeing is, is that God is going to bring some more of a type of heaven upon the earth. Just as the angel heavens are formed upon its creation, God's going to start forming the earth. Just as the angel heavens are filled, God is going to start filling gradually the earth with his images and with humanity. And just as the angel heavens is experiencing God's light upon its creation, because God is light, God is going to move his light down into the earth and illumine the world. There's a pattern of heavenization upon the earth, heavenizing the earth. This is important because I'm sure this morning you prayed a prayer about heavenization. You said me, you may have said something like this, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. You're praying that God's will as it's done in the throne room, as it's done in the angel heavens,
would be implemented and continue to be heavenized upon the earth and brought down upon the earth. It's important to put in some other information here, and that is Satan's rebellion occurred on earth in the garden in Genesis chapter 3 on the early part of day 7. And that's why Adam failed to enter God's rest because that's when he sinned and God caught him in his sin. So the rebellion of Satan and humanity, that created angel, the rebellion of that angel and humanity occurred on earth. The problem was with earth. The rebellion didn't happen in the angel heavens. It happened upon the earth. And that's why we pray that it will be done on earth as it's done in heaven in the angel heavens. Another way you see this pattern being implemented later in the Bible, the heavenization of earth is with Christ. When Christ comes, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, his announcement is that the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Wherever he goes, the kingdom of heaven is spreading. Earth is experiencing a heavenization. We see that here in the beginning of day one. That's the first pattern. We've got three more patterns to share with you. The second pattern that we see about God is the hovering pattern. Uh, look in verse 2. The earth was formless and empty and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This word is used again. It's a very rare word. It's used again in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, of speaking about a bird fluttering her wings, moving her wings over her young, protecting her young. It's a, it's a carrying movement. It's hovering, but also it's moving. It's stirring things up. It's, it's getting ready to work. His, he is getting ready to work. The Spirit of God is hovering. You could say it like this. I would suggest that the Spirit of God is stirring up the waters. And also notice that there's a word used twice in verse 2. It's the word face. Did you see it? The Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And also earlier it says that darkness is on the face of the deep. That's important because I want you to think about that literally. Think about the waters of earth looking up. The face of those waters are looking up toward heaven, looking up to God, longing for God to structure it, longing for God to design it, longing for God to shine his light upon it. The face is looking up. One reason I'm saying that is because when you consider the imagery of the face of the earth looking up to God on day one, I would suggest to you that when God's breath came down to the dust on day six to create Adam, that was a type of divine kiss where God's breath comes and breathes upon the dust of the earth. And there Adam was the offspring. Literally, that's what it says in Genesis 2, the offspring of heaven and earth. Adam's, Adam's a child of heavenly breath and earthly dust. But let's go back to the hovering, okay? And because this is a pattern that you'll see later in the Scripture. Whenever God does new things in the times of the, of the prophets, especially Ezekiel and Daniel, when God shows up, He's going to come and hover 
over some waters. In Ezekiel chapter chapter one, God's chariot, it's actually the pre the pre-incarnate Christ comes and shows up and he's hovering over the waters of the river Kabar. In Daniel chapter seven, whenever he has a vision of these empires coming from the sea, the great sea, in Daniel chapter seven, verse two, that sea is a symbol of the nations. And the four winds come and stir up the sea. It's the Spirit of God working through His people. That's, a, that's the meaning of the four winds of heaven, stirring up the great sea. And it's going to be something new coming after Daniel's generation. Two other times in the book of Daniel, the Lord, the pre-incarnate Lord, shows up. And He comes in between the banks of the Uli River. In chapter 8 and also in chapter 10, if I remember correctly. But he's between the banks, which means he's on the river. And then he tells Gabriel, hey, Gabriel, you need to strengthen Daniel because go touch him a little bit. He's falling to the ground. And Daniel rises back up to hear the Lord's voice. But the whole point is Daniel's hearing these visions of what's going to happen in the, in the decades and centuries to come leading to the time of Christ. God is hovering over the water, stirring the waters up because he's getting ready to do something in the future. It's like the beginning of a new creation, a new work, just like it's now in Genesis 1, the beginning of creation. Also, this kind of reminds me, considering the nations or the or symbolized of the sea in Scripture, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 1, uh, it's kind of, kind of funny and ironic. The Lord says, these nations are at ease. And we read the context, he basically says, that's not good. I'm going to stir him up. And then Zechariah is predicting about the coming back of the Jews out of exile through Cyrus the Persian, bringing them back to the promised land. God's going to stir up the nations and do something good for his people. Well, let's keep, keep, keep using that imagery and going forward. Jesus walking upon the sea, hovering, moving his body upon the sea. He's going to stir up something new in his generation, in his lifetime. And his apostles, his church, are going to move upon the nations of the world and gather them, gather the fish into the church, the fish of humanity. Now, you can take that on the macro level and you see the pattern that God does in the scripture and you think, oh, that's that's interesting. But I want to suggest this to you as well. Whenever uncomfortable things happen in your life, when things go wrong, consider it God stirring up the sea of your life. Consider it God hovering over your life. He hovers, stirs it up, but he's about to restructure things. He's about to bring something bright, luminous out of that dark era. He's about to heavenize your life a little bit more, but sometimes it's uncomfortable. So there's a pattern of hovering over the waters that we see here on day one of creation. It's a pattern that God replicates over and over again in the Bible in certain areas, in certain ways. And it's a pattern that we can appreciate even in our life. Thirdly, let's look at another pattern. There's a pattern of the Holy Trinity at work here in day one. As you well know, in John chapter one, Jesus, he explains that Jesus is, is the word of God and he is God the word. So what causes the light to shine? 
It is God's voice. It is God's word. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity. God said, let there be light. That is the word of God speaking there. That's God the Son. He speaks the light upon the earth. But where does the power come from? The power, well, the Spirit of God is the one hovering. The Spirit of God is, is right there. So implication is that God's, God the Spirit is the one who shines His light upon the earth. The Son spoke it. The Spirit shines it. And by implication, we can say that the Father saw it. God the Father saw His light. And what does God the Father say? It is good. Now, as a side note, let me say this, that anytime God sees something in the Bible, it's an act of judgment. You're seeing something and you're judging whether it's right or wrong. Well, here God makes the judgment. It's a, it's, he's judging the light and he's diagnosing, saying, that is good. It is his light that he is shining. And so it's a work of God the Son, God the Spirit, God the Father. This is very similar whenever Jesus Christ in his baptism, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit comes down upon the Son of God in the form of a dove. The Father is the one who looks down and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Even here on day one of creation, you see a pattern of the Holy Trinity at work. You can also explain this it's rather interesting when you talk about faith or saving faith. Um, just as God is the one who produces the light, and then God looks at the light and says that's good, you can make the same analogy with saving faith. God's the one who gives you the ability to have faith. The Spirit of God gives you the ability to have faith. And then also God looks at your faith as a Heavenly Father and says, very good. you got faith. Very good. That's the language used in the Scripture. Sometimes Scripture looks at faith and says, yes, it's all gift by God. It's, it's enabled by God that you have faith. Sometimes Scripture look, uh, uh, looks at um, faith as if God's looking for it and saying, where is it? Oh, there it is. Abraham, you have faith. You're justified. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to Him. It's just beautiful that even here, in day one of creation, you have the Holy Trinity is, is at work. Lastly, let me speak about the pattern of, of hope that we see in this passage. Now, there's an obvious point here, and that is, how does this day, okay, this, this first day begin? It begins with darkness. You know, it's important to say that this darkness is... It's not a bad darkness. It's not an evil darkness in the sense of a sinful darkness or, a e or something evil. It's just simply immature. And this is really profound to think about as well. And that is, God had to create this darkness. Uh, it's not that there was a whole bunch of darkness out there for all eternity and then God made this light or something like that. But, but even the creation here speaks this dark world into existence. God, God is speaking this into existence and it starts off dark. So what, what was there before the darkness? Nothing. It wasn't even dark. There wasn't even space to be dark. This is what we mean by ex nihilo. It's created out of nothing. Uh, you can say it this way. 
when God created everything right here, this is everything outside of God. Whatever is outside of God is a creation. And that's what God's doing here in, in this day. So it starts off as a good darkness, an immature darkness, something that's looking forward to something better. And then it ends with, with light. Now, let me pause right here and answer a lingering question I'm sure if some people are going to ask. And they'll say, well, how long do you know that these days are? And how long is this day? Well, let me say it rather frankly. This is a 24-hour day, a full day, a 24-hour day. And why do we know that? Because this, God's Spirit is the one that initiates this light and the sequence of time. He does it in day one. He does it on day two. And he does it on day three. So God's originating the sequence. On day four, he makes the stars, sun, and moon, and he uses the verb for this verb three times on day four. And it's the verb for ruling. The sun and the moon will now rule over the day and over the night. What that means is the sun and the moon are not originating a 24-hour sequence. They're simply ruling over a pattern that God has set. They're ruling over a sequence that God's spirit light has started. So by exegeting this passage, you can say that since we have 24-hour time period under the rule of the sun and the moon, then there was a 24-hour time period of the rule of God's spirit light. It makes you realize this, that there's two meanings of light here in Genesis chapter 1. And there's light that is produced by God's Spirit. That's what you see in day 1, 2, and 3. Then there's light that's produced by starlight or sun, moon, and stars. So there's two meanings of light here in Genesis 1. This leads me to explain also that there's two meanings of the word day. And this is going to pick up on the pattern of hope. There's two, look at verse 5 with me. You'll see the two times you see the English word day. In the Hebrew, it's, the word is yom. But look at verse 5. God called the light day. Whoop, there it is, the first one. Now, when that word yom is, is mentioned right there, it's, it's only for the time of light time. What you and I would call daylight time. So there's 12 hours of light time. And that 12-hour period, at the end of that period, is called day. The light is called day. That's 12 hours. There's a second meaning of day. Look, read, continue into that verse 5. The darkness he called night. So evening and morning were day one. Oh, there's a second time the word yom is mentioned. But when it says day one, what is day one including? It doesn't only include the light time. It also includes the earlier time when it was night. That entire period right now, that 24-hour period, the night along with the light is all called day one. Notice this. How it ends, that's how it's named. 
If it started, if he wanted to name it, how it began, what would it be called? It began with what? Night. And if you, na- if you started, if you name it how it began, you would call it, that's night one. <laughs> you see? No, it's not night one because God is naming it how it ends. It's Yom one. Day one. And so it makes you think this, that when you look back at the history of this first 24-hour period, is the night night? <laughs> it's all part of day one, but in hindsight, you say, well, even that nighttime has been redefined. That dark period, that immature period, is now just simply part of the whole day. Y'all know where I'm going with this. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Is that it's called eschatology. Eschatology is a study of last times, you see, or last things. And in this little seed, in this little acorn of this first day, God is teaching us that He's focusing on the fourth quarter, so to speak, if I, if I can use a football illustration. You know, you may be losing the game on the fourth, first half, third quarter, but if you win the, first, the fourth quarter, if you win the game then, You've won the whole game. It doesn't matter if you're really losing in the first quarter or in the first half. The point is, how does, it, how does the fourth quarter end? How does this last half of the day one end? It lands with light. Now, this is the pattern that is set. And throughout Scripture, you'll see. And John picks up on this as well. In John chapter 1, uh, Jesus is the light that has come into the world. Now, what he really means by that in a large extent is that the entire Old Testament time period was nighttime. The entire Old Testament was a time of darkness. Um, It was looking forward to something better. So when Jesus comes in, finally we've got the last half of day one arriving. But this is all in seed form here. So the entire Bible is distinguished between the dark era and the light era. And it shows you God's God's trajectory. That even in the Old Testament, even though it was dark, they were looking forward to a time of bright light to come in the future. Uh, That is how God works on the macro level, on on the big level. And he's teaching the church that here, in the first few verses of the Bible, of Genesis. Um, you know how this applies to you is very well. You think about it. There's times of darkness in a man's life or a woman's life. There's times of hardship. And what do they need in those times of hardship and darkness? They need hope. They need hope that this is, it's going to get better after this. That this is not the end of the story. That's what God's teaching in day one here. That the time to darkness is not the end of the story. Darkness always gives way to light later on. God is very, let me use a scholarly word, God is very eschatological. He is very future-oriented. What He began in you, He will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Paul says. Um, Over in Centerville, I teach Bible 
on Fridays for a few minutes to the elementary kids. And the first thing I teach them when they get in the first grade is the first, the days of creation and the theology throughout the days of creation. And in the very first class, the very first day of school with every first grader, I want them to learn that with God, things get better in the end. And I talk about day one. And I catechize them in, in such a way of saying, what does God teach you from day one? That with God, everything gets better in the end. I've grilled that in their heads. And I hope we had that grilled into our heads as well. So never to what, no matter what roadblock you come to or impasse or bankruptcy or failure or crash in the economy or death or divorce or whatever it may be or lose your job, it's darkness, yeah. But God's hovering over the waters. Mm-hmm. He's stirring things up. The work of the Holy Trinity gives you faith. God's Spirit empowers you. God's, God the Father looks down and says, keep, don't, keep going. Good job. I see your faith. It's good. He's beginning a new creation. So to remind you of these patterns here, there's probably more to pick up on. That's one thing I learned about the Bible. Even though I summarize it, there's always more down there. The first pattern is heavenization. The second pattern in Genesis 1, or day 1, is hovering. God hovering over the waters. The third pattern is the Holy Trinity at work. And the fourth pattern is the pattern of hope. Knowing that darkness will not have the last say, but light will endure unto the end. This is why we can look to the future, even as a church, and not be pessimistic. No matter how bad the country may be, we should always be, in the long run, optimistic. Long run, optimistic that the, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue to influence every culture, every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and God's, God will continue to grow his kingdom. Uh, we're only about 2,000 years into this work. Um, Daniel had the vision of the Iron Man and the stone collapsed the Iron Man. But that stone, that little tiny stone, grew into a massive, massive mountain. You know, in the year 200,000, the church is going to be a lot bigger than it is now. One day, they may look back and say, that was the early church back in 2022. And it's a lot brighter in the future. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for the patterns you set in the scripture and how you apply them to our life. You give, we give you thanks, Lord, that you don't leave us in times of darkness. But even after the darkness, you bring your light. And you establish us on high. You comfort us with the gospel of Christ. And even after death, you guarantee resurrection. In his name we give you thanks and praise. Amen.